0: section three of montezuma's castle and other weird tales this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by t e McHenry. montezuma's castle and other weird tales by charles b cory the tragedy of the white tanks i do not believe said the curiosity dealer that the bite of the gila monster is fatal It is poisonous, no doubt, and there have been one or two cases of death where persons have been bitten by it, but it's always well to remember that the teeth themselves may be in a condition to produce blood poisoning, which might cause death without the assistance of any particular toxic venom. The rattlesnake, however, which is rather too common in the desert, is a different sort of chap. If he strikes you, you may just as well make your will and chirp your death song as to monkeys with physicians, and squander some of the good wealth which may be useful to your family. I asked him if he did not believe in the efficacy of some of the so-called Indian snake cures. There are lots of Indian remedies, he continued, and the snake charmers cures for rattlesnake bites, which are, in my opinion, all popcock. It is claimed that the Mokey Indians, during their snake dance, allow rattlesnakes to bite them, and after applying the juice of a certain herb, suffer no ill effects from the poison. This may be all right, but the antidote is considerable of a secret, and you cannot bite at your druggist. There was a chap over in France who claimed to have produced an anti-venomous serum, which was a sure cure for the poison of the rattlesnake, or any other old snake which you might want to have bite you. I squandered $5 of my hard-earned wealth and sent him for a bottle. This chap lives in Lille, France, manufactures the serum at the Pasteur Institute at that place. He gives careful directions as how much to use and just how to use it, and it may be alright with some snakes that have a reputation of being bad, but it don't go with our rattlers. I tried it in all sorts of ways. I tried to get a Mexican to experiment on, but couldn't. None of them had much faith in the cure, not enough to let a healthy snake bite them for $5. Then I tried dogs. I got three curs, all in robust health. The first one died 15 minutes after being struck by a big rattlesnake, which I had in a box, although I injected him with a carefully measured dose of the serum. Another one lived several hours and made a hard struggle. I thought at one time he might pull through, but it was no use. He joined his friend in dog heaven after giving his final kick 4 hours and 15 minutes after he and the snake had been introduced to each other. The third one was a half-breed bull bitch with lots of vitality. I tried to make this one immune by injecting a dose of the serum 24 hours before and then again immediately after she was struck by the snake, but she did not do as well as the other one and died in 3 hours and 16 minutes. All these dogs seemed to die from an inability to breathe. The poison apparently acts on the respiratory centers rather than directly on the heart. They all vomited just before they died. Have you never found out what the Indians use as an antidote? I asked. No, I've tried, but they keep it a carefully guarded secret. And one reason I believe that the secret is so carefully preserved is because they have no antidote, and the whole thing is a bluff. You see, continued the collector, in my wanderings about the country, I've run across a great many queer people. And as you seem interested in the subject, I will tell you an incident which happened while I was out at camp one time at the white tanks, catching guia monsters, horn-toads, etc. I remember the year well, because I had a lot of trouble with a very useless assistant of mine whom I had sent to Central America to collect for me. Among the birds he brought back were a lot of skins of the blue chatterer. The one with the purple throat, you know? He knew I was anxious to get new species, so he thought he'd be smart and make some for me so he manufactured five, all with fake labels on, showing that each species was taken in different altitudes. Unfortunately, he commenced too high, and the mountains in the vicinity where he collected and where the labels indicated that the birds were taken lacked several hundred feet of necessary altitude for the two species, so that if the labels were correct, he must have shot them out of a balloon. They all looked alike except about the throat and the head. One lot had a gold band across the breast, another had the whole throat gold. Others had gold stripes or spots. I believe he produced these gaudy effects with the lighted end of his cigar. He doctored up a lot of hummingbirds, too. He made me a peck of trouble. I fired him, all right. Dishonesty in a trade like mine is, I think, most reprehensible. And there's no money in it, because you're dead sure to get found out. He was a cute little chap, however, and he learned a lot of tricks from the Indians. He could change a bird's color by feeding it on certain kinds of food. There is a chap in Amsterdam who does about the same thing and brightens up old worm birds which have faded out in the zoological gardens. And he sends them back with all the brilliancy of their original plumage restored. But he cannot turn a red parrot blue or make a gray parrot with a yellow head turn bright orange all over as this chap could. He told me how he did it, but the secret is too good to give away. But to get back to the story about the rattlesnakes. It was, as I said, in the spring of 89. A party of us were camped up at the White Tanks about 45 miles northwest of here. And one day a chap came into our camp, a half-breed Mexican Indian who called himself a snake charmer. He had a box of rattlesnakes, which he would allow to twine around his neck and bite him for a dollar. He traveled about the country giving exhibitions with his snakes and selling the rattlesnake cure, which was put up in small bottles containing the brown-colored liquid, which he claimed he made from a plant which was a sure cure for the bite of the rattlesnake and a number of the boys bought this remedy, paying him a dollar a bottle. He had seen our camp as he drove along the road to Phoenix, and he told us he'd been up in the country two or three weeks visiting some mines where he'd done very well selling his cure to the miners and exhibiting his snakes. There were several of us in our party, and one chap, a doctor by the name of Baker, who was always playing practical jokes. As we were coming back to Phoenix the next day, Miguel, which was the snake charmer's real name, I believe though he was generally known as Mexican John, decided to stay over a day and go back with us baker proposed that we should see how much faith miguel had in his own antidote as it happened i had captured a very big rattlesnake the previous day and had him in a box by my tent by the aid of some forked sticks and bagging we succeeded in fastening the snake so that he could not move we then pried his mouth open and kept it open with a small stick we took all this trouble for the purpose of preparing him to assist in the experiment which he and mexican john were to be the principal performers baker carefully cut out the poison sacs which are situated just beneath the temporal muscle back of the eye it was suggested that it would be better off to remove the fangs to avoid any possibility of danger but baker objected he said removing the fangs would give the whole thing away he took the precaution however while the snake lay helpless with its mouth open to carefully wash the teeth and then filled the small openings near the end of the fangs with some dental cement which baker had in his outfit which hardens in a few minutes you see, the fangs of the rattlesnake are like two hypodermic syringes. They are hollow tubes, as it were, with an opening near the point. A little narrow slit, but one that is easily seen if you look for it. Through this, he squirts the poison by the aid of the temporal muscle, which he contracts as he strikes. As we had removed the poison sacs and plugged up the fangs, the snake was not in very good condition to do any serious harm. He, however, was fighting mad, and evidently did not enjoy the operation which he had undergone. It did not seem to hurt him any, however, for he was as lively as a kitten, and when we let him loose in the box, he was ready and anxious to strike at anything. Toward the evening, Miguel came back to camp, and we had the snake all ready for him. It was a much larger one than those which he had in his box, and when we slipped it in among the others, we could easily recognize it from its size. The boys asked John to give an exhibition of the curative powers of his snake cure, saying that they'd like to buy some more, but wished to see it tried before doing so. John was quite ready, and after opening the bottle of the antidote and lifted the cover of his snake box, he reached in his hand to take one of the mount. As he did so, he was immediately struck good and hard by the latest addition to the collection. My, how he carried on. He looked hastily into the box, and then at the marks on his hand where the things cut in. He gave one screech, grabbed a knife, cut the place wide open, and commenced to suck fiercely, at the same time praying and cursing almost in the same breath. The boys begged him to apply his antidote, asking him what was the matter and why he appeared to be so frightened. But all the answer they could get was, Don't touch me. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And say, what do you think? He did die. He got weaker and weaker, his teeth were clenched, and he refused to take whiskey. Although the boys forced some down his throat. In a little while, he became insensible, and in less than an hour, he was dead. Scared to death, you say? Well, maybe so. Anyway, the boys said the laugh was on Baker. The End of The Tragedy of the White Tanks.